Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 10th, 2019. This is episode 2506 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Tuesday, time for a Just Back, Just Jack show, and it will be a little bit of, I guess, kind of a throwback show. Uh, going back to a core principle of modern survivalism and even talking about a little bit of the genesis of the term of modern survivalism, which while I can't prove it, I believe that I am the originator of the concept known today is modern survivalism. I'll tell you why I believe that's the case when we get into today's show, but I want to kind of talk to you guys today about our six primary survival needs and how modern survivalism plays into that what modern survivalism is really all about, because a lot of people are telling you what it's about today, and, well, since they didn't create the term, they don't they don't get to say what it means. I do, and I don't mean to say that with an ego. I mean, it's just honest to God, you know. Uh, Paul Wheaton created a semi-underground house called the Wolfati. There's a lot of other underground houses out there and semi-underground houses and earth-structured berm houses, etc., and people can say whatever they want about what that is, but... Paul Wheaton, whether you like him, love him, or hate him, he gets to tell you what the hell of a fonty is because he came up with it. So I feel that way about modern survivalism. At least you should know what I mean when I say it since you listen to this show. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what the hell a survivalist really is and why, why all humans are survivalists. The question is not, is a person a survivalist? It's how good are they at it? And, and a bunch more today. I think you'll enjoy today's show. It will harken back to all the way to 2008. And in some ways, maybe even feel a little bit like one of those old shows from back when I was podcasting in the car for you new people. Um, from 2008 through 2009 until uh, the first show done in 2010. That was the first one done from home, from an office that was permanent. Uh, for those first 18 months, I did the show in my car every day. So we're going to kind of go back to some of the things we talked about back then. Before we do that, though, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today is Backwoods Home Magazine. Um, Backwoods Home is the only sponsor that I have that my relationship with is longer than how long I've been doing the show. I've been doing the Survival Podcast since 2008. I bought my first copy of Backwoods Home magazine in 1993. Yeah, 1993. I've been a customer of them since 1993 when I got out of the Army and I moved to Texas after my long walk on the Appalachian Trail. And I was stuck in this town called Louisville that was right near Dallas-Fort Worth and surrounded by big city everywhere and had no money and I was broke and could barely afford to have any fun. And all I wanted to do was be back in the woods. And I found Backwoods Home and it let me go there, at least in my mind, and it taught me a lot about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty. So when they asked to become a sponsor of the show, it was an easy thing to say yes. If you check them out, they are the ultimate magazine for information today on self-sufficient, self-reliant living. Check them out at BackwoodsHome.com. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. You know, um, I'm particular with my meat. I want my beef grass-fed. I want my pork pastured. I want my poultry pastured. I want my poultry organic. I don't want to be eating chicken that was fed GMO soy and then was that GMO soy was sprayed with Roundup. I, I don't want that in my body. I am not a health nut, but I do try to make good choices. And I like meat. 
And I like meat to be good quality. I get all of that at Butcher, butcher Box. And every month, a great big box of meat shows up on my door, and it's still frozen solid. Some people, I think, are iffy on having meat shipped in the mail. Guys, they ship it with dry ice in an insulated box. It gets to you. There's a video somewhere of me on my Instagram channel where I'm like, bacon, clack, bacon, clack. And you can just hear the bacon packages coming out of the box. And this is a video we shot in like June in Texas when it's so hot that hobbits are throwing in my, you know, rings in my backyard to melt them. That's how hot it is here in the summer. And it's like bacon, clack, bacon, clack. I think the guys at Butcher Box actually put it out on like their Instagram or social media somewhere. They took my video of me going bacon, clack, bacon, clack. And they made it into a ringtone. Uh, so I think that's out there somewhere, but you know, I don't mind it because I love recommending butcher box. I love having them as a sponsor. They're the only sponsor I have. They pay me in product. Yeah. They don't pay me in money. They pay me in meat shipped to my house. If I'll take meat in payment, you know, I'll recommend it to you. Check them out today. Butcherbox.com. Remember you can pay for your entire MSB membership more than twice over just with the discount they give you on butcher box, 10 bucks a month, 12 boxes a year. 120 bucks. Even if you don't need that much meat in your life, who doesn't? But let's say you don't want that much. Why wouldn't you? Well, whatever. Let's say you only get Butcher Box every other month, six times a year. Still 60 bucks off on my $50 membership. So consider them a great supporter and also consider becoming a member of the MSB today. And I'll tell you something else about Butcher Box. This bears saying, occasionally Butcher Box will come out with a program that's designed to attract new members. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I'm able to talk them into doing it for you guys even if you're already members of their program. For instance, they did a thing not too long ago where you got two pounds of ground meat a month extra in your box forever for a one-time purchase of $30. This is grass-fed ground beef, two pounds, 30 bucks for life as long as you stay a customer. This was obviously something to entice new customers. Some of you guys heard about it. I went and tried it. It worked for me. I guess they left a bug in the system, that let, and they fixed the bug. And I said, hey, there's my buddy Daniel over there. Hey, dude, like it worked for me. He goes, you know what? You guys are so great. We'll do it for you. That's the kind of company butcher boxes. I'm not saying they'll always – because some of this stuff, obviously, if you let people stack too much of it, you don't make any money anymore. And your, your, your companies have to make money or they can't serve you. That's called capitalism. That's what capitalism really means, right? You have to make money doing something or you can't keep doing it. But butcher box – Man, these guys are stand-up guys, and they just have a great product. Check them out. And I've been adding salmon to my box because, well, it's salmon, and it's all yummy and stuff. Wild caught. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and dig on into the topic today. Let's start out with the concept of modern survivalism before I get into your six primary needs because, really, that's how they're derived, and that's how we make some changes from what the bushcraft people start out with. But before I even explain modern survivalism, a word that's been used by the media to just stupid levels. And I guess the market got really hot for a while, right? Like, So when I started in 2008, nobody was talking about it. By 2012, there were TV shows and doomsday preppers and all that. And every once in a while, the media will talk about some crazy survivalist who ran away in the woods or whatever. And they throw the word survivalist around to mean some crazy guy that's, of course, part of a right-wing racist militia that lives in the woods and has a beard even bigger than mine, that is an expert with firearms and wants to blow up a building. That's what they mean. That's not what the word means. And I'm not talking about my version, modern survival. I'm talking about the word. See, one of my problems with the media and with people in general today is they decide what a word means for themselves. 
You don't get to do that. This is the English language, right? So the dictionary and the rules of the English language are pretty clear on what words mean. And survival list comes from two pieces. One is the word survive, and the other is a suffix. In other words, something we add to the end of a word to specify what we mean. So let's start with the suffix, ist. Ist means to specialize in. That's what it means, right? A scientist specializes in science, a specific type of scientist, an environmentalist specializes in environmental science. See? That's what ist means. It does not mean gun nut. It does not mean crazy person. It does not mean racist. It does not mean anything other than to specialize in. Okay? Then we have the word survive. Survive simply means to continue to exist, to continue to live. So a survivalist is simply someone who specializes in continuing to live. And this is why I say all humans are survivalists on some level. Because most people continue to live. And so certain things a specialist in not dying would do is not step out in front of a car, right? Not light themselves on fire with gasoline and a match. Not jump out of a, a window on a 12th floor of a building, right? These would be things that you would do if you were not specializing in the desire to survive. In fact, all living beings, even lemmings, because Disney lied to you all the way back in the 60s and they put on the wonderful world of Disney and shit, it was a lie. Lemmings don't intentionally kill themselves. All living beings specialize in continuing to exist. They try to survive. This is where we get survival of the species. So I used to have arguments with my biology teacher in high school. Survival of the species is the result. It's not the thing. The thing is the individual's desire to survive, and those who are better at it, the, the ones that are better survivalists, pass their genes down to the next generation, which ensures survival of the species. Since human beings have been around for two million years, even the ones that we look at and go, God, that person is stupid, generally don't kill themselves. We all know about the Darwin Awards. Most of them are lies. Occasionally somebody really is an idiot and takes their own life, and we all feel a little bit bad and find a little bit of humor in it, especially if we don't know them. But we're all survivalists. It's not a word that means anything more than what it means. Now, if you add crazy survivalists, you can make a connotation that survivalists are crazy. It's not true. But you can have crazy survivalists. We've all seen them. We all know who they are. I've had some in my audience. Some of the emails I get from them, guys, one day... I, I really should stop just deleting them, and I should save them. And one day I should do a show, Jack's Mailbox, and I should read you some of the absolute freaking insanity that comes in my email. My God, there are crazy survivalists. Though, I wonder how many of them actually are good survivalists that are also crazy. You see what I'm saying? So that's a survivalist. Now, let's talk about what modern survivalist means then. So modern survivalism simply means that when we look at specializing and the desire to continue to live, we can learn a lot from primitive, primitive societies, bushcraft survivalists, our ancestors, and even our grandparents. People that had to continue to exist when we didn't have GPS. People that had to continue to exist when we didn't have refrigeration. People that had to continue to exist when... Um, we didn't have the, the vast amount of state-provided security that we have today. I'm not necessarily saying it's a good thing. This is not a discussion on that. But just in general, 
if you live in the modern world, if you live in the Western world, you have a lot less concerns about security than you would have, let's say, even 200 years ago. So we can learn a lot from, well, what do we do in the absence of what modern society gives to us? That's great. That's one piece of it because modern society is here. And while there always is that one in a million chance that, you know, we're going to have a coronal mass ejection from the sun and it's going to shut the grid down for three years and we're going to have Mad Max, that's, that is not a probable scenario, but it is at least a possible. While that's always possible, the most probable scenario is no matter how bad things get, what we have today is the baseline of what we'll have tomorrow. And we will have more tomorrow than today. And when I said that back in 2008, and things were picking up in the survival movement, I had a lot of people telling me I was overly optimistic, we only had five years left, the world was going to end, and then Barack Obama got elected and the UN was coming to get us. I'm telling you, Jack's Mailbox would be a great show. Some of the crazy tin hat shit, right? And But here we are. Here we are in our 11th year. And that truism has remained the same. No matter how good or bad things have been, What we had in 2008 was a baseline, and today we have more. So if we want to specialize, then we want to use all available technologies, all available resources, all available options to not just continue to exist, but to continue to exist in a good state. Number one thing that kills people in the world is truly stress. It's truly stress. Obesity is often caused by stress. Marital strife is caused by stress. Stress feeds all of the problems that we have. So we don't just want to not die, right? We want to not die and thrive. We want to be a thrivalist, which is something a lot of people have thrown around. I really think that comes from, what's his name, 4-Hour Workweek guy, Tim Ferriss. I really think he's the first person I ever heard use that term. So we want to be kind of a thrivalist as we're a survivalist. So we also are going to branch out beyond the fact that, for instance, It makes a lot of sense to know how to do land navigation with a map and a compass. It really does. Because maybe your GPS won't work someday, and maybe you'll need to know how to do that. It's more likely than you'll need to do a math problem and not have a calculator. I'm just saying. It really is. However, GPS is in everything today. And if you don't think I pull up the Maps app on my phone when I'm trying to get to somebody's house that I've never been to before, you're crazy. Of course I'm going to use it. It's the best technology available today. Well, I used to use a thing to do that called a Mapsco. I didn't use it a map and a compass back in 1995 when I had to get to Fred's house and I just met Fred and gave me his address. I opened up a Mapsco because it was the best available technology at the time. In 10 years, I will probably be able to get to my car and go, take me to Fred's house and my car will drive me there. I will use it because it will be the best available technology at the time. But this goes beyond what we think of when we think of survival skills. It's all of the life skills. So while it might be really great to learn to cook over an open fire and understand the difference between cooking with fire and heat, because you cook with fire, you burn. If you cook with the radiant heat off the fire, you cook. I am not going to not use really great high-end gas appliances that are in my home. I'm not going to refuse to use, in some instances, an air fryer because it's a great tool, right? Additionally, going completely off of this, money. I am not going to not use investment vehicles like deferred uh, tax accounts like Roth IRAs 
I'm not going to not use mutual funds. I'm not going to not use ETFs. I'm not going to not use stocks. I'm not going to not use securities. I'm not going to not use options like puts and calls in investing, right? But I'm also going to have a healthy reverence for my grandmother's advice to put some money under the mattress. Now, that's a metaphor. Even my grandma didn't actually put it under the mattress. What she meant was have cash. So it's the blending. Modern survivalism is the blending of the modern technology in all walks of life with the ancient and recent past wisdom of our forefathers. Whereas most people live in one place or the other. We have the traditional primitivist that thinks the world's going to end tomorrow, that lives in a hut somewhere in the woods, like a Unabomber shack with the MREs, and he is the stereotypical survivalist people talk about. And then we have the people that are completely 100% dependent on modern technology, and if everything takes a shit, they're screwed. We find the balance. And that way, if things start to change, we can move assets, we can move provisions, we can move preps as necessary and adjust to what's on the ground. That's modern survivalism. And I, I, whenever I get a chance, when people say, oh, crazy, prepper, survival, whatever, whenever I get a chance to explain it that way, there's tons of people that won't become responsible adults and do it, but no one ever thinks it's a bad idea. And the number one problem I have with explaining it to family members and friends is, well, if something goes wrong, I know where I'm coming. That's their statement. And my response is, if there's a storm, if your house catches on fire, etc., sure, come on over. I'll help you out as best I can and help you get back on your feet as quickly as possible, which means back out of my house. Now, if you're worried about the thing the TV talks about and there's a global pandemic or something like that, and what have you, and you have refused to do anything, you've been an ant while I've been a grasshopper, there may be no room at the end for you. That gives a pale white face. But no one ever says the basic concepts of that idea. They're all like, wow, yeah, well, that makes sense. Well, then why don't you do it? Because it's being a responsible adult. And before I go through our needs and some components that make them doable and some ways to think about them, I just want to say one more time, that's what modern survivalism, prepping, etc., being a good boy scout and being prepared is. It is being a responsible adult. If you have children and you don't have at least a few weeks to a month's worth of food to feed them, if something goes wrong with the food supply, you are an irresponsible parent and you are not a responsible adult. I don't have any problem saying that. You are irresponsible as an adult and you are not a responsible parent if you could not feed your children for a minimum, absolute base minimum of two weeks without leaving your house. You shouldn't even have kids. And if you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, well, I'm actually offended by that, tough shit. You came here for reality. I'm going to give it to you. You have children in your care, and you can't even feed them for two weeks without the systems of support that can fail. You're not responsible. Sorry. All right. Moving on. Let's talk about our, our primary needs, our six. Now, if you are a student of bushcraft survival, you'd say, but Jack, there's five. And you would say quite accurately, according to the Bushcraft Credo, would be they are food, water, shelter, fire, and security. You would be correct. But do you live in the woods? Maybe you do, but most of you live even most of you that even do would say, well, I do live in the woods, Jack. As a matter of fact, I'm looking out my window right now at the woods. Okay, then you live in a house. You have heating, you have air conditioning, or at least you have fans, you have a roof, you have four walls. Your shelter is in place. Your concern should be more about how you make sure your shelter doesn't go away than it is how to get one. 
When you're in the woods by yourself and you're lost or you're testing your skills, your need for shelter is, I need to improvise one. It's very different right out of the gate, even with the same thing. But let's talk about fire. Well, in the wilderness, fire is what we need. We're probably not walking around with a big, giant 400-watt solar array on our back and carrying two giant Iron Edison batteries through the woods. So the energy source that we can create on demand with the most primitive of tools, like a bow drill or a flint and steel or even a quick flick your bick, is fire. But fire isn't really what we're after, even in the woods. We're after energy. Now let's look at another need. You're in the woods. You're lost. You're testing your skills, whatever. You're surviving in the outback, whatever that means to you. You got to take a dump. What do you do? You go over there, and you dig a hole, you take a crap, and you kick the dirt on top of it. Since if you're in that situation, it's you and maybe one or two other people, you can move around a bit, and you can take a dump for the rest of your life, and you're never going to have any problems. You and your two children, surrounded by 50 other houses in the middle of suburban America, are now dealing with a long-term resource shortage due to hurricanes with moderate flooding around your homes. You can't leave, there's nowhere to go, and your toilet won't flush. Hmm, you have a problem, do you not? Walking over there, kicking some dirt up, and taking a dump in a hole can only last so long in that scenario. And if everybody's doing it, you've got an even bigger problem. And then that leads to a decline in health. Let's look at a place where we had this go to the extreme, Haiti, during the Haitian earthquake, where I learned to withdraw even my 1% of support left for the Red Cross, by the way. The number one thing that killed people during the earthquake and in the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti was not the earthquake. It was the lack of systems of support that caused a breakdown in health and sanitation, causing an epidemic of many different diseases, but the primary symptom that killed people was dehydration due to diarrhea. In other words, people shit themselves to death because of a failure of health and sanitation. So I'm thinking, in addition to the five primary survival needs that they give you in bushcraft school, you might want to add health and sanitation to that, since it's the number one killer in disasters around the whole damn world. I'm just saying. Does that make sense? So we end up with a revised list of things that we need in order to be modern survivalists to create redundancies and planning for food, water, Shelter, energy, security, health, and sanitation. I cannot do a show this involved and give you a line, you know, a line item list for every one of them. Let's just talk about how to think about each one and how to put your life in order. Let's start with food. Food is easy because you're going to eat every day. You're going to eat every day. Let me say it one more time. You're going to eat every day. If you go multiple days without eating, we call that starvation. Now, unless you're fasting for health reasons or spiritual reasons, you don't do that unless something's wrong, okay? And one of the ways that we maintain our health and sanitation, which we will say for last, is to be well-nourished. One of the ways we, we maintain our energy levels to deal with stress is food. Another way that we need to do to make sure that we, up, we keep our morale up is being able to at least eat well. So I'm thinking food's kind of important, right? So what we need to do is we need to take stock of the food in our homes. We first need to know what we have in our homes. I guarantee you most American homes, 
Now, if you live in a, like a little tiny studio apartment in New York City, you probably know where everything is because you can see it from where you're sitting now. But in most homes, I could probably go in and start pulling shit out of cabinets, out of pantries, and go, what is this? And you're going to be like, I, I, I don't remember buying that. So the first thing might be to figure out everything that we have. And then we need to figure out like everything we have that's soon going to expire that we're probably not going to use. And in spite of the fact that I think prepping is always about scarcity and hoarding, get rid of it. Either go ahead and use it or take it to a homeless shelter, give it away, and organize everything first and know what you have. Then say to yourself, self, if for some reason I couldn't leave my house for two weeks right now, what would we first miss? And then shore that up. And it might mean you need a second freezer because maybe you're not going to can and stuff everything. We'll talk about, but if the power goes out, we'll talk about that when we get to energy. Just relax. Maybe it is you need more canned food. Maybe it is you need more dry goods. Whatever it is. But all you need to do first is just get to two weeks. See, at two weeks, I think that you're not prepared enough. But I do think you're at least responsible. I also think with two weeks, that means that, like, we can go two weeks. We're going to be pretty well happy and we're not really going to miss anything. Which means to survive, you could probably go a month. You know, you might get a little bit bored eating mac and cheese or whatever. But you're okay. Well, then you just stretch the two weeks into a month. And if you can go 30 days, anything beyond that is because you've personally decided that your family and your homestead are worth it to be further than 30 days. I like 90 days for myself. Now, that doesn't mean that after 90 days I'm going to start starving. That means for 90 days, I'm good. Don't even have to worry. Now, I might go to the store quite a bit during those 90 days because there are certain things that are nice to have that are luxuries that you want fresh or whatever. And there are certain amounts of I don't want to deplete of the stores. So we're eating what we store and storing what we eat, but we're being selective in how often we pull from the storage. But at 90 days, you can survive almost anything that is conceivably going to happen in the world. And you can probably take care of your neighbors for a week without blinking, which is probably about the average time you would tolerate taking care of your neighbors or your family member that showed up on the porch before you make them pull their own weight. Okay, So food is pretty easy to do. And I have entire episodes on nothing but food storage. But I believe in taking a holistic approach, which means we make sure that we have, we store what we, we, we store and store what we eat, and we develop the capacity to produce our own food through gardening and, and foraging, and the ability to take food that is not storable and to make it storable through preservation methods like smoking, like dehydration, like canning, like flash freezing, blanch and freeze, etc. That's all you got to do. All you got to do is put your household in a place where you and your family would be okay, maybe not even super happy, but okay for 30 days on food. Because if you have a 30-day food buffer and things start to go wrong, you will figure out how to extend it. You will not panic about food, and you will be able to handle the situation. Next up, water. Water is so stupid easy that it doesn't even make sense that anybody's not prepared. All you need to store a lot of water in a highly portable way that makes sure you always have water on hand is containers and your sink. That's it. If you are running out and buying 10 cases of bottled water because there's a storm coming in, I have to ask, do you even think about the fact that an unlimited supply of water will literally come out of a thing that exists in multiple rooms in your home right now and probably a couple things that exist on the walls of your house on the outside? 
you have an unlimited supply of water all the time in what we would call peacetime. So we need containers for water. So we should go to my survival super supply for crazy preppers.netcom and we should no, we should not do that. We should go to Walmart and spend like ten bucks for basically a blue um, version of a fuel can that's actually smaller, or we should spend twice as much as a fuel can for the blue one that's the same size because it says water on it. No, we sh shouldn't do that either. We don't, we don't need any of that shit. If you want to store a massive amount of water, you can get the nice blue um, uh, blue barrels, the blue food-grade barrels, and you can store tons of water in there if you really want to. You can get IBCs and store tons of water, 330 gallons to an IBC. You can set up rain catch outside. That's all good stuff. But look, why don't we start out with like making sure we have water to cook with, eat with, and do basic cleanliness with so that we're kind of helping out health and sanitation all the way through here. Because food is part of it, water's part of it, being able to bathe, clean wounds, etc. So we need containers that will hold water. Where would we ever find such a thing? Well, either you or friends are probably using large bottles or jugs that are really great, uh, high-strength plastic. But plastic, shut up, it's for storage. It'll be okay, I promise you. Two-liter soda bottles and the jugs that like apple juice and Arizona iced tea and stuff like that comes in. If you don't drink any of that stuff, good for you. I don't either, but I know people who do. And if you say, "Hey, man, uh, do you does your family use two-liter soda bottles?" Yeah, we do. Can you save some bottles for me? Pretty soon you'll have to be like, "I don't need any more bottles. I don't need any more bottles. Take them home, put a couple drops, rinse them out really good." Put a couple drops of chlorine bleach in them, fill them up, put the lid on, shake the shit out of them, dump it out, fill it up, put the lid on it, put it on the shelf. It's not going to go bad. It's not going to spoil. It's not going to go rancid. It's water. The water you drink today was the piss from a Tyrannosaurus Rex 65 million years ago. Relax. It's freaking water. Now, water can kind of go flat tasting and stuff over time, so use the water, fill the bottle back up, and put it on the shelf. You should be able to easy put aside several hundred gallons of water that way. And then you won't be out bitching that Best Buy charged you $1.95 a bottle, which they charge every day, but for some reason the people on Facebook that want to be outraged and do feigned outrage over a storm are pissed off they charge the same amount by the case. You won't fall for that. So we're going to have water taken care of, and then we can go further with that if we want to, but at least have enough water that your family's needs for cooking, drinking, And bathing. And let's talk about bathing for a minute when it comes to need. You do not need to stand in a warm shower for 15 minutes a day every day of your life. You do not need to. <laughs> You're not going to like the term, some of you. But when I say enough for bathing, I'm talking about what we used to call in the Army a whore bath. That basically means we're washing our face, our armpits, our hands, our feet, and our crotch. And maybe washing out our hair. And if you can do that every day for a month and you have enough drinking water every day for a month and you have enough cooking water every day for a month, you're going to be okay 99% of the time. And you're going to be able to take care of your neighbor for a week, which is about as long as you will tolerate your, your neighbor at all. I agree with Benjamin Franklin when he said house guests and fish are similar and that after three days both begin to stink. All right, so there we go on the water. Shelter. This is the one Americans ignore. And we ignore it because it's a default in our society. 
even poor people live in project shelters, right? So we do have homeless who live on the street, I know. But in general, most people, certainly people that sit around listening to podcasts with their leisure time, have some shelter within they reside. Well, what if you couldn't? What would you do? There's a lot of ways we can lose shelter. Our house can burn down. Now you don't have your shelter anymore. By the way, all the stuff in it is gone. So we have insurance. We have monetary reserves so that we can stay somewhere until the insurance kicks in. Right? We have a plan to get out. There's other ways we can lose our shelter. What if your house doesn't burn down, but all of the surrounding area is on, you, is on fire and there's a mandatory evacuation? What if there's a storm, and even if it doesn't blow down your house, to, uh, to be a better survivalist, in other words, you don't want to die, you have to leave. You got me? How many people just had to leave or should have left because of hurricanes? So there are times where we, even if your shelter remains, you have to go. There's also a financial management so your shelter is not taken away through something called foreclosure or eviction. Right? People don't talk, when you talk about survivalism, oh, eviction, I mean, if the world, the shit, it's the fan, there's an economic collapse, nobody's going to pay anyway. And no, See, that's not what we plan for. That is a worst-case scenario, and some of the things that we plan for in better scenarios are actually not a big problem, and you're probably right. Eventually, those people are going to want to be paid, though. They will put you back together. But we need to be thinking about insurances with our shelter. We need to think about maintenance of our shelter. If there was a leak on the roof when your grandfather was your age, he got up on the roof and he fixed the leak as soon as possible. Because he, it wasn't like, well, I'll call a guy he'll be here next week. He knew that the damage being done inside the roof needed to be stopped immediately. You see what I'm saying? So we need to think about our shelters far more encompassed, and we need to think about what would we do if we had to leave. Is that an RV? Is that a bug-out location, a secondary structure, right? Is that building the structure we have so that it's you know basically indestructible? Some we talked about. I mentioned Wafati's in an homage to Paul Wheaton, but some underground structures, you know, short of flooding, it just isn't going to happen. You're not going to have it blown down. It's not going to happen. It's an ice storm. It's still it's going to be warm inside. So we can build structures that are incredibly resilient. But we should at least put some thought. I live in this structure. What happens if I have to leave? Where would I go? How would I get there? What do I need to take with me? That's all built around the shelter need. And humans need shelter. And people think, well, you can live without shelter. Sooner or later you won't. It'll get too cold or too hot. And you'll need to create some sort of improvised shelter. So understanding the ancient techniques, if all else fails, important as well. Next up, energy. As I said, when we go into the wilderness, we think fire because fire is the on-demand energy we can create. Very few places that we can go. Well, we can't find something that's combustible, put it into a pile, and somehow ignite it, and then we have heat, and we have light. We can cook, we can purify water, we can dispose of waste, we can improve our morale, right? We have energy. If we're cold, we can get warm. We can build an improvised reflecting shelter, so it's more like the back behind us and the fire in front of us and the fire's heat radiates off and bounces back and warms our body. We can cook our food. We can make tools with fire. We can make things like a, we can make a bowl out of a log. We can make a canoe out of a big-ass log with fire. 
We can make spear points. We can harden materials. We can make things with fire. Why? Fire is energy. So in our world, I bet you, when you want your house to be warmer in the winter, you don't generally go start rubbing some sticks together. Now, some of you may have masonry fireplaces or uh, wood-burning furnaces or something like that. You may indeed make a fire, but most of us go to the wall, and we go click and turn it down. You know, we turn it up. It's at like 68. It's kind of chilly in here. Turn up to 70, and boom, the furnace kicks in, and heat comes on. So what we really need in our society is energy. I cook with a gas grill. That heat comes in the form of fire, but it comes from gas. So a simple thing for me is my propane company hates me. Because when my giant propane tank is half empty, I call them and order more propane. They're like, call us when you're down to like 10%. No, because something really bad could happen when I only have 10%. And then you might not be able to help me for like a month. So when I get down to half, I have it filled back up. And I have like five, six, eight, eight. I have eight of the grill tanks. And when one gets empty, it goes in my truck. Sooner or later, I'll get in that truck and I'll go somewhere. When I go somewhere, I'll go past somewhere that I can get it filled up. So I will fill it up and bring it back home. And then the next time one looks even close to empty, it goes in the truck. And that way there's always propane here. I have gas cans. And I have them, you know, in my storage buildings and... Uh, whenever I use gas from one, it goes in my truck and it goes to the gas station. gets filled up with your gas or diesel, depending on what it was. So there's lots of gas and diesel here at all times. Because of that, we can run our generators, we can run our cars, we can run our inverters, we can charge up batteries, we can run our TV set, I can run my fish tanks and my ponds. I can go weeks. I'm okay. It's all right. The world will not end for me. And all of that really beautiful meat that people say, well, it's, it's not preservable. It is to me. I got a Troy-built generator, 7,500 running watts. One pull. I can run it for weeks on the gas that I have. I only need to run those freezers for a couple, three hours a day. Everything stays frozen if you keep the door closed and throw some blankets on them. Energy. You see what I'm saying? Energy does not mean that we all have to live off-grid. That's great if you do. But what if you have a really bad storm and it rips the panels off your roof? And you have no secondary plan. Well, I don't need it because if the grid fails, it won't matter. Well, what if your grid fails? I'll tell you what puts you in touch with the advantage and disadvantage of decentralization. Living like I have now for six, seven, eight, nine years on a well. And prior to that, four other years of my life living on a well. When your well has a problem, it's your problem. When you live in the city and you turn the faucet on and water doesn't come out, because there's a main break somewhere, it is your problem, but it's a responsibility of the water company. When you turn the water on and it doesn't come out of your well or it spurts orange water out or you have it tested and it says there's something nasty in there, it's your problem. So for all the beauty and decentralized, self-contained systems, they do become 100% your responsibility in addition to your problem, and it work. So redundancy becomes more, not less important at that point. But that's how we need to think about our energy. The more we can produce for ourselves, the better. But if we only produce for ourselves and those systems fail, we have no backup. We have no plan B. And we have 100% of responsibility. So a balance there makes sense. So the way to think about this is to look at everything in your home and rate it that uses energy. 
rating of a one is critical. If this energy is not restored soon, bad things happen. So for one of my garden ponds, if energy is not restored to the pond, in about 12 hours, fish start surface breathing. In about 18 hours, fish start floating and going stagnant and dying. I will rate that a critical system. My freezers and refrigerators, if they are not run a few hours a day, after a day or two, things start to go bad. There's a lot of money in there. My food supply is in there. I will rate that a critical. Got it? If I was uh, a person that was dependent upon some sort of a medical device that needed energy, I would rate that as a critical. I would rate it as a critical. Now, important rating of two, my gas stove. Because I have so many other ways that I can cook food, my gas stove is a two. It's an important. And then there's a nice to have. My air conditioner, I really like it. But I can survive without it. Now, if I had an infant child in the home in my summers, I might rate the ability to cool a room as a number one critical. If I had an aging parent, if I had health conditions, I would rate it as a critical. I Even now, I rate some ability to cool, to cool as an important a two. I have two window unit air conditioners, and I have generators. I can cool a room no problem. You see what I mean? So all we have to do for our energy needs is look around our house and rate everything that uses energy. Notice I didn't say electricity. Uses energy. Rate it, and then develop redundancies based on the rating. Done. See, this isn't hard. Now we need to look at the most overlooked need that we have. Security. And to understand how overlooked it is, we need to understand why it is overlooked. It is overlooked for two reasons. The first reason is you can do without security your entire life, and if you're just lucky, it won't matter. Every other survival need, if you have it in complete absence, you not might, you will die. Some people walk through lives. They even walk through dangerous areas. They do stupid things. They go to construction sites without hard hats on. They use skill saws while holding a board with kickback. They take no concern for safety or security in their life at all, and they reach the end of their life at 99 with 10 fingers and 10 toes. They don't even eat healthy, and they, they make it that long and don't have a heart attack. They go to sleep, and they die. right? And then what, what aggravates that is that so much of your security is outsourced now. Security is completely outsourced now. In other words, there's a police department. People generally look after each other. In well-run and organized societies, there's just less crime, even without... The system itself is security. People don't steal if they don't have to, unless they're scum. Right? So, in a well-ordered society, which we have, despite all its problems, there's only about 10% of people that are out there willing to be complete scum anyway, unless their kid's going to starve if they don't. Okay, and then are they really scum or are they just trying to keep their kids alive, right? So so we have that. Then you add to it layers of security with police departments and things like that, fire departments that come spray your house so it doesn't burn all the way to the ground, etc. And then you have a false sense of security on top of it. The key with security it is is actually when needed the need you can do without for the least amount of time. Even if we go to extreme and we add another one, air. And we go to rule of threes, air, water, you know, things like that. Um, 
you can hold your breath for 30 seconds. If you can't hold your breath for 30 seconds, you have a serious medical condition that needs attention. You can be without security for a microsecond when you need it, and you're dead. Somebody just shot you. Somebody just slit your throat. Somebody just choked you out, drug you in a room. Now you're going to get raped and killed. That I, I know people don't like to be made that uncomfortable, but that is the truth about security. Security, you can get away with not having any personal stake in it at all for your whole life, or you can be without it for one second, which could be as simple as letting down your situational awareness when you shouldn't. And next thing you know, there's a shiv in your back. And even though you're not dead, you might as well be. You're bleeding out. You're going to die. And that's the truth. And that's why we need to think about security. Security is based on, in my opinion, procedure and protocol. Procedure is how we behave on a daily basis. Procedure is, hmm, this place looks sketchy. And I'm going to need gas soon. But there's a sign for gas somewhere else. And I'm alone. And those dudes are standing over there. I'm not stopping here. Procedure is I always look when I walk into a restaurant at if somebody came in here shooting, where would they come in? How would I get out? That's procedure. right? Procedure is I carry a gun. Procedure is I carry a knife. Procedure is I am trained to physically defend myself. That's procedure. Procedure is that I keep the door locked. Procedure is we keep the front gate locked. Procedure is we lock our car doors. These are all procedures. Procedures are what you do all the time as a matter of course because you're security-minded. When it comes to security procedures. Security procedures are I use antivirus and, and, and firewall on my computers. Security is I use complex passwords. Security is I have a dog that will eat your face off if you try to get in my fence. And I promise you, it's not a bluff. Some dogs are bluffs. I have two dogs that bluff. I have one that doesn't. He will eat you. He is a security procedure. He is always there. Then there are protocols. Protocols are we are at a heightened state, and now the procedure becomes modified. Procedure would be how we daily conduct business around the property. Protocol would be there's riots going on. People are starting to march through the streets. No one goes outside by themselves, and no one goes outside in arms at all. Right? Procedure would be the power's out, so we turn the generator on. Protocol would be there's a lot of shit going on because the power's out, so we run the generator during the day and we shut it off at night so we don't attract people to us. And I, again, I can only go so far in a show like this where we're trying to be broad. That's how you think about security. Head up, eyes out, pay attention. I say those words to my grandson every time he gets out of a car in a parking lot. I see that boy's head go down. I grab him physically by his head, and I, I don't hurt him. Don't think this wrong. But I palm his head like a basketball, and I bring his eyes level, and I turn his head 180 degrees back and forth. Head up, eyes out, pay attention. Because you're going to get run over by a car. That's what I'm worried about while he's eight. Right? I got the whole bad guy thing for him. But... He can get away from me. But he's hit by a car. He was without security for how long? And he's dead. And i got to live with it. So if anybody gets on my shit because I pick his head up and make him look, tough shit. He's my grandson. You worry about yours. Okay? But that, if, if I can tell, and I, and I don't have to do it anymore. Now he's like, Tegan, head up, eyes out. She has no idea what he's talking about. She's three. But you learn best by teaching.
right? That's security. And that mindset has to go through everything. And then you have protocols for when things are beyond the norm. Last, health and sanitation. This is the one no one wants to think about. This is medical preparedness. This is nutritional preparedness. This is water. This is dealing with your waste. Let's talk about the one no one wants, like human waste. Here's your final fail-safe on human waste. You should have a bunch of bottles of the blue stuff that you squirt into portable toilets and for RV toilets and things like that. A toilet seat, five-gallon bucket, and a bunch of hefty sacks. It's gross, I'll admit it, but at least during the need time, you can crap in a bucket, you can keep the stink down, tie up the bag, double bag it, and put it out, and eventually, in most situations, someone will come take the bag away. Now, if you live in a place where you can dig a big enough hole for people to crap in during an outage, you might want to dig the hole in advance. But one of the number one things that sets down sewage is flooding. You see the problem there. Yes? I hope so. Now, another thing that you can think about is urine. There is no need for 99% of people that live in home houses. Now, if you live in an apartment, this might be a little more difficult. But if you have a house, a couple straw bales, kept somewhere dry, and then if you get to the point where you gotta, you got to pee outdoors, throw down a handful of straw, pee on it. Throw a little more straw on top of it, keep doing it. All you'll end up with is a big pile of compost in the end. And your kids and your wife and whatever can squat and pee, and everybody can pee there. Let's keep all the pee in a place where it's absorbed by carbon and just becomes compost. Now, if you're really environmentally mindset and fertility mindset, you could be doing that now to make compost, but maybe you should at least get everybody familiar with it in case it's necessary. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying, you know, how open are they to it? If not, at least have the plan and say, hey, you know what? Either you can, you can empty the bucket... Or you can pee outside. I bet you, I bet you they'll pee outside. Then we have to think about water. Water and keeping our water clean and being able to purify water if we use all that we have. And we have to think about basic first aid, wound cleaning. We have to think about the medications that we might need. So medications I break into maintenance medications and acute medications. So maintenance medication, if you are on high blood pressure medication. Man, it, it can be really dangerous to come off of that stuff. And it can be really hard to ration safely. So you should have at least 30 days of reserve at any one time. And, you, you know, no one's out, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody's out like, hey, man, I need to score some dope. What do you got? I got some blood pressure meds. Yeah, I want those, right? So I don't think you're going to have a hard time getting a doctor to do that for you. Diabetics, insulin. Anything that you need, you should have at least a 30-day reserve. And then when you start using that reserve, a new 30-day reserve comes in. And maybe more. It's up to you. But So those are your maintenance medications. Acute medication, what I mean by that is you're stuck at home and you can't leave and somebody's sick. This can be everything from over-the-counter meds to prescription meds and to even like I would call gray market medication. Gray market medication would be something like it is not illegal to buy antibiotics for your fish tank. And as we've had Doc Bones tell us many times on the show, they are the same antibiotics your doctor prescribes for you. If you know what they are, using them is as safe as using them. They would be anyway. They're made, they're the same down to the capsule. No one has fish antibiotics, Inc. to make the antibiotics. It just doesn't exist. So they are in standardized doses. They're the same pills that your pharmacist prescribes. So having... 
the knowledge of what they are, how to use them, what to use them for, and a supply of fish antibiotics would fall under health and sanitation. But I want to go back to something. The number one thing that kills people is diarrhea when it comes to health and sanitation. It's from things like typhus to just garden variety illnesses. And the reason is simple. If you give a person a choice to drink contaminated water or die of dehydration, sooner or later they will drink the contaminated water and they will do it every single time. You understand that? Every time. There is no instance in which the person who is parched will not risk it. And then they become, you know, they whatever illness they get, diarrhea becomes part of it. They rapidly dehydrate no matter how much they drink, which only makes it worse, and it is a deadly cycle. And literally, there were people being saved by small nonprofits in Haiti, and a little child's life was being saved with $2 worth of Imodium. So diarrhea medication, in case it happens, and enough water and way to purify it so that it doesn't happen. You do that, you have maintenance medications, first aid training, a way to deal with your waste, a way to deal with your garbage. Okay, You got that, 30 days worth, probably going to be okay. So those are your six needs and how to think about them and how to shore them up in your life. It really isn't that hard. So I want to finish up pretty quick with just six bullet points here. Um on components that make them work optimally. Components in your life that if you get them right, everything I just see gets easier. Number one, home economics, man. Money and economics. If you run your financial life right, if you pay off your debt and you don't go back into it, if you manage your, your bills, you have the ability to save money every month, both into your retirement long term and into just general savings. You do not spend more than you make. Everything I said to do is actually easy to implement within a year. Now, I'm not talking about being somebody that will be featured on some stupid reality TV show, okay? But I'm talking about somebody that, like, when something goes wrong, you just have what you need. Generators, fuel, all of it. One year if you're financially sound. No problem. So balancing the financial equation, number two, is time freedom. This has a lot to do with finances. But a lot of this stuff takes more time than it does stuff. Having a go bag, for instance. So a bag that you can grab and survive on three days. If you can't survive, if you can't find everything you need to survive for three days in your house, how do you survive in your house? So it would be a matter of putting the stuff in an organized manner into a bag. That takes more time than money. And there might be a few specialized things that go in that bag, but everybody should have a go bag. Right? And it takes time. Gardening is a huge way to have better health, better nutrition, and therefore better sanitation. Okay, It's also a way to have more food available. It's a way to have food available if other things fail. It's a way to have more balance in your economic life as well. But what does it require? Time. So designing your life to have time. For you, I don't have time. I don't have time. No, you have exactly as much time as I do. And you have exactly as much time as the person that says they have less time. There's 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. 365 and a quarter days in a year, which makes, by the way, 4.34 um, weeks in a month. There's not four weeks in a month. There's 4.34 weeks in a month. Check the math if you want to. Right? We all have that same amount of time. The Earth spins and it goes around the sun. Okay, It rotates and it revolves and we measure our time by that. Sun goes up, sun goes up. You have the same amount of time I do. How you manage your time is critical to being able to be able to put things together and to have the mental state to deal with things going wrong. 
all I don't have time is, is an excuse. Because there's something you're doing with your time that could be modified, changed, and redirected. And people that are entrepreneurs were the worst because we put so much into our business and we let, our, we let ourselves abuse ourselves. We allow our boss to abuse us when we're self-employed. That's why I have a t-shirt that says, I hate my boss and I'm self-employed. They're available at the TSP Gear shop, by the way. TSPgear.co, you can get one too, right? I hate my boss and I'm self-employed. My boss is an asshole and I'm self-employed. We have that one too. Um, we need to be good bosses when we're self-employed especially. And say, I'm going to schedule this. And then I'm going to get it done. And if I can't get it done, I'm going to manage my employee. If you're a solopreneur, that's yourself. So that I can get this done. And I'm going to develop a system that confines my work to the system so that I have time to be a human outside of work. Otherwise, you can be much more miserable as an entrepreneur than you can as an employee. And there's no point to it then. So having the time freedom is about developing the system that allows it. The next is lifestyle freedom. This is where the entrepreneur is way ahead of everybody else, right? Lifestyle freedom I define in two ways. One, how much control you have over how you manage your time. So the, the downside of an entrepreneur is you can easily enslave yourself to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. The upside of being an employee is you don't have to tolerate that shit, right? You have a, a, a set agreement with an employer And then when you go home, unless you're certain positions, certain jobs, most people go home, I don't give a shit. When they leave on Friday, they don't even think about the place till Monday morning. Okay? So the lifestyle freedom an entrepreneur has is say, well, I can work at night. I can take this, I can work really hard for two days and take two days off. All of that stuff you have more. But the other part of lifestyle freedom is a lot of it's geographic. If you live in a place with a homeowners association, what you can do with your homestead is limited. So you, if you really want to have the ultimate in a modern survivalist lifestyle, which is not just a prepared lifestyle, but an enjoyable, agreeable, designed life, the life you want, then you need to think about the lifestyle freedom component to what you're doing. That doesn't mean everybody should be an entrepreneur, and that means, it doesn't mean no one should live in a conventional suburban house with an HOA. But I don't want to. And you really need to ask yourself if you do. There's places where you can live like I do. I can do anything I want. I mean, literally, until I am cooking meth, no one will care. And if somebody does, there's no one that can do anything about it. But you don't need that much freedom, but boy, it's nice to have. So think about that as you're designing your life. Space. I have people all the time, how do I do all this if I'm in an apartment? And my answer is you don't. You do what you can with what you have. You store it fits in where you have space. So the more space you have, the more you can do. It's really easy for me to store 60 gallons of gas and 60 gallons of diesel fuel. It's not even hard. If I, when I lived in a little apartment, a one-bedroom apartment that I used to have, like a studio apartment, there was no way I could have done it. But I could store a few gallons of gas out on my patio, hidden under a tarp, so that the landlord didn't get pissed off. Right? So you can always do something, but the more space you have, the more freedom you have. Personal discipline. Personal discipline is probably the most important component to be able to do, not just this, but every component that is lifestyle design. Because understand that preparedness is only one piece of the larger aspect of lifestyle design. Lifestyle design is I'm going to take control of my life, design it my way, so I live my way on my terms. Preparedness is, and so when something screws up, I can go back to the way it was relatively easily. 
I don't get destroyed for the rest of my life. That's what preparedness is, self-preservation in many ways. But the personal discipline is the means by which it gets done. And the last is sufficient motivation. We all know what we should do, but how motivated are we to get them done? And so you need to find, if you're not prepared as you should be, what is your motivation? Most people, unfortunately, try to draw their motivation from fear. But what if, but what if, but what if? Well, we should be drawing our motivation from what does it mean when? If you want to lose weight, instead of I don't want to be fat, I don't want to die of a heart attack. I mean, those are good things to get you started, right? But then you, what you really, what drives you is when I weigh the weight that I want to weigh and I'm healthy, what will it mean to me? What will it mean to my family? What will it mean to my friends? What will it mean to my life? How much happier will I be? So when you're prepared, you remove stress from your life. You're going to live longer. When you're prepared, if something goes wrong, like I just said, you can get back to where you were relatively easily. You have resilience. You have a lack of stress. And you know that when you look at your kids and they're sleeping in bed at night, they're going to eat tomorrow, no matter what. And they're going to eat next week, and they're going to eat the week after that, and they're going to eat the week after that, and they're going to eat the week after that. And by then, you'll figure it out. You get to know that. They'll be warm. They'll be okay. If they get sick, you're going to be able to care for them. That's the motivation that you need. You need to be coming at preparedness, not from a place of scarcity, but from a viewpoint of abundance. People steal when they feel that they can't get things any other way. Again, throw the scumbags out for a minute. But when normal people steal, it's only like, my kid's got to eat, so that guy's kids doesn't get to eat because my kids are more important to me than him. Scarcity. Scarcity is when people have riots to get a five-gallon can of gas. They don't even know what they're going to do with it because they have no place to go. But everybody else is getting some. I better get some before it's gone. That's a scarcity mindset. Scarcity mindset always comes at the crisis state. But we live in a world of almost infinite abundance all the time. So what we do is during the time of abundance, we build up enough reserve so that if there is a scarcity, we're not part of the problem and we can render aid. That's the motivation that we need to have. And with all of this, I have to ask you this. We started out talking about survivalist and the crazy version of the media and modern society and the real version. But when we talk about crazy, I want to ask you, who's really crazy? The person that thinks about the six things that they need most in the world and develops redundancy for them so they can take care of themselves and their family and their neighbors if need be and not be a burden on others when something eventually goes wrong because no matter where you live, sooner or later something will go wrong. Or the person who doesn't. Which one of those two positions seems rational and which one seems irrational? And if you are otherwise an intelligent, rational person behaving in an irrational manner, isn't that kind of crazy? So my final thought for you is preparedness isn't crazy. The lack of preparedness, when it's so damn easy to put in place, that's craziness. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed today's show. Uh, a couple of ways you can support the show. One is by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. As I said, the Butcher Box, who was our sponsor today, discount alone, pays for your membership 2.4 times over, 120 bucks on 50 just for the Butcher Box one. And there's a bunch of other really great discounts. You use herbal supplements. Uh, the Western Botanicals premium membership is 50 bucks. That's, you're, you're at zero out the gate if you use that. 
Uh, gun adapters discount. Boy, that really pays off fast. If you use CBD oil, we have two different suppliers of uh, three different suppliers. No, I didn't get John Bush yet. Two different suppliers of CBD products. We have a CBD, CBD coffee vendor. Excellent, amazing coffee on top of the fact that CBD infused. Uh, and then we have the CBD uh, vendor, uh, Hemp Magic, who is the best products I've ever used and has really made a difference in my life. I know not everybody can use CBD, but if you can and you're using it and you get 20% off all the time, are you kidding me? That doesn't pay for your membership? If you haven't checked, stuff's expensive because it works. So, I mean, that's just an example. So consider becoming a member today. And then even without the discounts, it's 18 cents an episode if you think the show's worth it. Next up, do your online shopping where? tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. T-SPAZ. Easy to remember. T and SPAZ, like you used to call kids SPAZ in school. I know somebody's offended by that. Get over it, okay? Even if it was you. I was called a SPAZ once or twice in my life. I ain't dead and I didn't bleed from it. Anyway, tspaz.com. Find all the stuff I review on Amazon. As long as you start your shopping there, you help us and the work we do no matter what you buy. But I have a recommendation of a product for you today and today. I went and checked over, over my records over the three years I've been recommending it. And as of this month, I have recommended this enough that over 2,000 units of Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone have been purchased through tspaz.com. 2,000. I have received dozens of emails telling me how great this stuff is. I have received not a single email that said, I tried this shit and it didn't work. Not one. 2,000 units in three years, not one complaint. Trust me, when something doesn't work with one of my recommendations, I hear about it. This stuff is based on comfrey, but it's got a lot of other herbs in it, and it does two things. One, it relieves pain. So, like, if your knee hurts, your back hurts, whatever, it is a great uh, acute pain reliever, muscle pain reliever, etc. But it also helps to restore damaged bone and tissue. I can't officially say it does as a cure because the government says it's a drug if I say that. So it doesn't, but it does. And what I mean by that is I used it on my knee with torn ligaments when doctors said I needed surgery, and within a month, my knee was fully restored. That's all I can tell you, right? And everybody that uses this stuff says it works. Comfrey was traditionally known as bone knit in folk medicine. This stuff is awesome, and it's been around for damn near ever. Yes, I make my own comfrey salve, but this stuff works so good with the additional things in it, and it's so reasonably priced, I buy it. I recommend you try it. If you have a place where it hurts, it aches, etc., give it a shot. It's not going to hurt you. Um, I will say for things as far as to totally recover, the sooner comfrey is used, the more it's able to do that. Uh, it also works on some skin conditions, etc. The one caution with anything using comfrey, never use it on deep cuts, deep punctures, deep scrapes. And the reason is that it is such a good dermal regenerator. In other words, it regrows skin cells that it will, it will heal a wound. Well, that's good. Not if it's a deep wound and it needs to drain. It's like some, some wounds you shouldn't stitch because it will hold infection in, and that's bad. Comfrey actually on deep wounds can actually cause the wound to heal so quickly that you could seal in infections. So abrasions, scrapes, minor things like that, insect bites, etc., great stuff for it. Uh, deep cuts and wounds, don't do it. Anyway, check it out, tspaz.com. You can always support the show, and this stuff is awesome. Last bit, let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day today is called Love Me Anyway by Pink. Uh, John Adam is, for all intents and purposes, our musical program director who makes up a list of songs for me every month. And I have to say that I almost didn't play this song. 
because I don't like it. It's by Pink and features Chris Stapleton, and Chris really kind of like anything with Chris Stapleton I'll give a shot to. I don't dislike the sound of the song. It is kind of a ballad, love song, um, slow tempo, female singer, you know, up in that pitch. So it's not really the most motivational song for ending the show with, but that's not why I don't like it. I mean, I know some people don't like Pink in general for whatever reason. I think she's an incredibly talented artist. The song's called Love Me Anyway, and it's basically a woman asking the question of a man, if I did all these horrible things, would you still love me? I think that, you know, kind of what it makes me think of is like a modern female version of when a man loves a woman. I've always loved that song for its, and I'm not the Michael Bolton song now, for its sound and for its general concept of unconditional love. But let me tell you something. In a healthy relationship, love is not unconditional. Love is unconditional from the standpoint of if you get cancer, I'll stand beside you. If you become terminally ill, I'll stay with you and hold your hand as you die. If you make a mistake and you truly didn't mean to do it, I'll stay with you. But if you think you can abuse our relationship, no. And this song comes across to me, and I guess the question is not answered, so maybe it's an open-ended question, but my answer to the question if it's open-ended is no. If I slander your name, will you still love me? No. If I go out and flirt with all the other guys... Is it just flirting? Because it's funny. I really don't care. I don't get jealous like that. But if I mean, if you're out hoeing around to be blind, no, I want to love you. If you don't respect me, I think that people that get in relationships with the concept that you love the other person no matter what they do or how they treat you, those relationships end in the worst possible circumstances. Unconditional love when it comes to a partnership. It's about unconditional love as long there is a condition. Do you both put each other as the most important person in your life? As long as you do that, then all of the things that go wrong, unconditional love indeed, the decision, the willful decision to intentionally harm the other party, And we're not talking about a one-off here. This sounds like, I want to constantly abuse you and still have you love me. No. And I think if you're in a relationship like that, whether it be romantic, there's friendship relationships, there's business relationships, and there's familiar relationships like that. Whenever I've had someone that I have decided I don't want them in my life anymore, and they apologize and they come back, my question is, based on the way this person has behaved in the past and based on the way that I see them behaving right now, will my life be better that they're in it? If the answer is no, sorry. No, I won't love you anyway. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to lo- live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Even if you see my scars Even if I break your heart If we're a million miles apart you think you'd walk away I get lost in all the noise Even if I lose my voice Flirt with all the other boys What would you say? Could you Could you Could you 
It's the 